The scripture this morning is going to be uh, in Psalm 8, and we have uh, Bibles for you. Our ushers are in the back, actually, with physical Bibles that look like this. And so if you don't have a Bible or you uh, don't have one with you today and you'd like to read from a physical Bible, if you could just raise your hand, uh, they will come and find you. And uh, we have in page 371 of that Bible, Psalm 8, verses 1 through 9. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory in the heavens. Through the praise of children and infants, you have established a stronghold against your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is mankind that you are mindful of them, human beings that you care for them? You have made them a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honor. You made them rulers over the works of your hands. You put everything under their feet, all flocks and herds and the animals of the wild, the birds in the sky and the fish in the sea, all that swim the paths of the seas. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Amen. Well, good morning, everybody. It's good to be with you. I'm excited to continue this series that we've been, Explore God, as Cindy has mentioned, where we're looking at seven of the biggest questions that people tend to have about faith, God, Christianity. Uh, last week, we kicked things off with, does life have purpose? Uh, I don't usually say this, but if you haven't had a chance to watch that and you're at all intrigued in this series, I encourage you to go on our website and have a look, have a, have a watch, uh, because that's really meant to set up uh, everything that we're doing in this series. Does, does my life have purpose? Uh, we looked at the book of Ecclesiastes. Really enjoyed doing that with you. Uh, last week, does life have a purpose? This week, is there a God? So yeah, let's uh, knock this out real quick and then get on to lunch. Uh, it's, of course, a big question, right? It's in, in many ways, the biggest question. And you know what all philosophers agree upon is that uh, it's essentially impossible to prove the existence of God. As it is, also essentially impossible to prove the existence that there is no God. And so, all of us live by faith. We live by faith whether we believe there's a God. We live by faith if we believe there isn't a God. In prepping, uh, prepping for today's message, I was looking out at, at surveys, and I found one taken back in 2022, which is a year ago, uh, that said 81% uh, of Americans believe that there is a God of some sort. Uh, that number actually surprised me. Uh, it didn't surprise me that it was, it was up there, but so high, I was like, okay, that, that, I wasn't expecting that. So 81% of Americans believe that there, there must be a God. Over half believe that there's the God as described in the Bible. Wherever we fall on this, wherever we believe, don't believe, uh, we're all thinking about this. We're all trying, trying to westle with it. And, and really the, the goal of today's talk, and really the goal of the series, is to not convince you that you just need to believe there's a God already. Or for that matter, the goal is not to remove all doubts in this room. The goal is to consider these very important matters, wrestle with these very important matters that I think on the whole we tend not to, or at least not in any uh, degree in which they deserve, in which we, we ought to. Today's uh, big idea is that uh, when we're open to the possibility that there's the existence of God, there's actually a lot of indicators out there that, that he's there, that he exists. Uh, what I want to do today is something a little bit different. I want to start things off with a, with a video. So we're going to get all 
technological here, um, and show a video of Francis Collins. Uh, some of you might recognize that name, Francis Collins. He's the, he was the main scientist, the director of the Human Genome uh, Project. I think he's also like main science advisor to President Biden right now, so a pretty accomplished dude. He's going to talk about his faith story and how he ended up putting his faith in the Lord uh, later on in life. So let's, let's give a watch to that, and we'll be back. Well, in the home where I grew up, uh, faith was not something that was talked about very much. Uh, my father was a professor of drama, my mother a playwright. Uh, when I went to college and those discussions in the dorm late at night about religion uh, began to occur, I had no particular reason to attach value uh, to a faith system. It had never been something I was familiar with or had internalized at all. And I assumed that any religious feelings that anyone held must be on the basis of some emotional experience, and I didn't trust those, or on the basis of some childhood indoctrination, uh, which I felt I was fortunate to have missed. I loved the experience of learning about the human body and all of the components of that, and I particularly loved being introduced to genetics. But then I ended up in the medical school curriculum sitting at the bedside of patients with diseases. This was no longer an abstract study of molecules and organ systems. These were real people. And one afternoon, one of my patients, a wonderful elderly woman, much like a grandmother, uh, who had very bad heart disease. Uh, she had a particularly bad episode of chest pain uh, while I was with her. She got through it, and at the end of that, explained to me how her faith was the thing that helped her in that situation. She realized that the doctors around her weren't really giving her that much help, but her faith was. And after she finished her own very personal description uh, of that faith, she turned to me, and I had been silent, and she looked at me quizzically and she said, what do you believe, doctor? And ultimately I had to admit to myself that her question had made me realize that I had arrived at an answer to the most important issue that we humans ever deal with. Is there a God? And I had arrived there without ever really looking at the evidence. And I was supposed to be a scientist. If there's one thing scientists claim they do is to arrive at conclusions based upon evidence. And I hadn't taken the trouble to do that. I was greatly assisted uh, by a pastor who lived down the road who I went and asked about all this and who gave me a copy of C.S. Lewis's wonderful book, Mere Christianity, because here was an Oxford scholar, a prodigiously developed intellect, who had traveled the same path. Within those pages, I realized for the first time that one can come to belief on a rational basis and that, in fact, given the many pointers that one sees around oneself in terms of the universe and it having a beginning and its fine-tuning in terms of the way in which all those constants that determine the behavior of matter and energy seem to have been set just in a certain very precise range to make life possible uh, and many other things including my beloved mathematics and why they actually work anyway to describe the universe something that makes you think the creator must have been a mathematician that brought me then to the person of Jesus Christ as 
a person who was historically extremely well documented, that was news to me. I thought Christ was as much myth as history, and I realized after reading more about it, this was a historical figure upon which we have a great deal of evidence for his existence and his teachings, and even his rising from the dead in a literal way. That day at uh, my patient's bedside started a journey for me journey that I was reluctant uh, to begin, but I felt I needed to. A journey that I thought would result in strengthening my atheism, but to my surprise, resulted in my conversion. So Francis talks about pointers, evidence that you know, indicate God's existence, and uh, I thought we could call them uh, signposts, right? They're really signposts that point towards the existence of God that we can, we can consider here. Um, not airtight cases for, hey, you just gotta, you gotta believe this. Remember, it all takes faith, whatever position we kind of fall in. But here are some signposts that Collins, and by the way, Collins wrote a book on these things. You could check it out later. Um, but, but many have kind of raised as, as possible signposts and, and pointers towards God, as, as Collins put it. So number one, there's the fine-tuning of the universe, which he talked about. I am no scientist. A lot of you guys are, are far uh, further in these, this field than I am. Um, but it's this whole idea, there's a lot of constants out there when it comes to behavior and energy, that if they were just tuned just slightly differently, it would make life as we know it uh, impossible. And there's this idea of consciousness that uh, many of us just believe, just, just have this sense that there's just more to us than electrochemical reactions happening in our, in our, in our nerves, in our brains. Uh, there's morality and justice. Uh, we talked about this a little bit last week when we said, uh, if there is no God, and therefore there is no higher standard, then what do we decide to be you know, right and wrong? Uh, we all understand that we, we are born with an innate understanding of right and wrong. And by the way, that's well documented across cultures, including cultures that are, are not in contact with other cultures. But we, there's right and wrong in us. But the problem is if we remove God or a higher standard from that equation, we have real trouble defining what right and wrong is. Do we go with, with you know, the, the collective majority, consensus? Uh, well, that, that's very problematic. History shows us that that's led to a lot of problems. Uh, even well-intending majorities have caused a lot of pain for, for others. Uh, do we then go with uh, personal preference, what, what, what I, with what I think is right and wrong? The problem with that, of course, is well, what happens when that contradicts or that, goes, that flies in the face of what you think is right and wrong? And then what about just our natural human tendency to just bend what we believe right and wrong to be uh, whenever we feel like it, or at least when it works out in our advantage? Okay, so morality and justice. Uh, relationships and connections are signposts to God. Uh, I'm no theologian. I'm certainly no philosopher. But it seems to me perhaps the deepest longing that we as people have is to, be, is to know and be known. It's to be in relationship. And... I think even the best of relationships that we can experience, human relationships that we can experience, uh, show us that, e that even the most ideal of circumstances that we can have among each other uh, falls short. Even the best of relationships will let us down, will let them down. Uh, and yet the Bible tells us that God is love and, and so forth. Uh, there's a signpost of meaning and purpose. That was last week's message. Just this idea that we have all of us just about, just this innate sense of like, well, what does my life matter? What, what's the purpose of it all? 
Uh, Collins mentioned uh, mathematics and order. Okay, our, our sense of eternity, we could, we could talk about each of these things. Come to groups, maybe we talk more about these things. Now, today what I wanna focus in on, and we're gonna be briefer today, is uh, one of the classic of all signposts, and that is the signpost of the natural world and how that points to the existence or presence of God. And to do that, we're gonna look at Psalm 8, which was read. Let me, let me pray, and then we'll, we'll jump right in. Father, our prayer today is the same prayer we had last week, which is really our prayer every week, and that is that you would reveal yourself to us. As we consider the natural wor world and, and, and your word, uh, these ways in which you have revealed yourself to us, we pray that beyond intellectual understanding, you would, you would reveal yourself to us, not just in our minds, but in our hearts, in our souls as well. I pray that you would, you would do so for, for us no matter where we are in our spiritual journey. That for those of us who are asking about uh, questions like, is there a God, uh, to people who have been following you for, for many years, I pray that you would help us either, uh, that you'd reveal yourself to us and we'd receive what it is you have in front of us today. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so Psalm 8 begins and actually ends with, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And he says, you have set your glory in the heavens. And then in verse 3, I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place. Okay, so the heavens point to the existence of God. If you read up on the early astronauts that had the privilege of traveling to outer space, and particularly those who got to go around the moon, uh, they all describe this out-of-body euphoric experience of what that was like. And many of them actually connect it very quickly and directly to their understanding of there has to be a God. Listen to how astronaut James Irwin put it. He said, the earth reminded, reminded us of a Christmas tree ornament hanging in the blackness of space. As we got farther and farther away, it diminished in size. Finally, it shrank to the size of a marble, the most beautiful marble you can imagine. That beautiful, warm, living object looks so fragile, so delicate, that if you touched it with a finger, it would crumble and fall apart. Seeing this has to change a man, has to make a man appreciate the creation of God and the love of God. Listen to astronaut John Glenn. He said, to look at this kind of creation out here and not believe in God is to me impossible. It just strengthens my faith. I wish there were words to describe what it's like. Now, obviously, we all here don't have the opportunity to go up into outer space unless you have a connection to SpaceX or whatever. Um, but we do have an opportunity to experience something of similar magnitude when we get to go out on a clear, dark sky and just look up. Okay, so look about you gotta drive 50 miles away to get away from the light pollution. But you get the idea, we, we can just look up. One of the things I love about, I grew up in the Bay Area, I love about going camping is just that idea of looking up and just seeing the stars. It's just amazing, it blows, blows your mind. It's, uh, I don't know if you've seen uh, some of the photos. Imagine everybody here has seen the photos of the James Webb Space Telescope. I could just look at those images for hours. And especially the ones where the resolution is so good that you can kind of like zoom in, you know what I mean? It's like, yeah, I mean, some of these images, it's crazy. They're finding that in the smallest sliver of the sky, we have the smallest picture of that sliver of the sky, and yet there are tens of thousands of galaxies there. With each galaxy on average about 100 billion stars, so it's like, I mean, that's just, that's enough to make your mind go numb. We get to look up in the sky and just see the beauty and the immensity of it. The psalmist here is saying, this is the Lord. This is his glory. He is the majestic one 
uh, for me, one of the, the clearest uh, pointers to there being uh, a God is in sunsets. I've always loved sunsets. Uh, when I was at UC Berkeley as a student, I was a lifeguard for many years. So I worked up there on Strawberry Canyon, if you know the area, which is awesome. I mean, you get to just look out over the bay and you got the Golden Gate Bridge and whenever there's sunsets, the whole field there at Strawberry Canyon is, is, lit, is, is packed out with people. And my buddy and I, we had like the sunset shift as we lifeguarded and we would, you know, take turns on going up and who got to watch the sunset. And enough people cleared out of the pool, we could leave one lifeguard there and go up and watch. And so I'd go up and watch. And it was, just, it, was, it was so incredible looking at these sunsets. Because every sunset is different based on the weather pattern, the cloud formations, the moisture in the air, where the sun goes down on the part of the bridge or the bay or whatever. And every moment of every sunset is different. I just kept thinking as I was looking at these things, just feeling it like in my core, there's got to be a God. The beauty of it all, this is how Isaiah 40 puts it. To whom will you compare me? And who is my equal, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes, look to the heavens. Who created all these things? He who brings out the starry hosts one by one and calls forth each of them by name. Because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. So, did the world come into being, into existence? Did the, did the heavens, the stars, the immensity of it all, did, did that all come into being, the beauty of sunsets, by chance? It could have, but the reality is that takes faith to believe that. Uh, the psalmist then moves from the glory of God as seen in the heavens to the glory of God as seen in babies. Some of you are thinking, ain't no glory in that, but here's how he says it in verse 2. He says, though through the praise of children and infants, you have established a stronghold against your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. My dad had us kids memorize uh, Psalm 8 at, when, we were, when we were younger. And that verse says, out of the, in the Old King James, it says, uh, out, of the babe, out of the mouths of babes and sucklings, thou hast ordained praise. You know, I mentioned earlier that for me, seeing some of these beautiful things around the world, I've just, it's for me been enough to be like, there has to be a God. Uh, for Cindy, babies is enough to understand there's a God. Uh, some of you know her story. Uh, she grew up in a Buddhist home, not Christian. She was invited to a youth group, a Christian youth group in high school, got to start to hear about God there. And it wasn't until college that she put her faith in, in Jesus, started to follow him kind of as a, as a, in a personal relationship. But in college, she took a biology reproductive class. Uh, probably wouldn't have been my cup of tea, but that's what she signed up for. And when she started to get into studying all of the complexities of life, how miraculous it is and statistically like improbable that life just would happen babies to even be born she's like there has to be a god there has to be a god uh some of you know this story uh, but when our second child was born we almost didn't get to the hospital in time uh, we had a health care provider at the time that will na remain nameless for this story that kept telling us not to come in Cindy had very strong contractions, but this healthcare provider kept saying, no, you don't need to come in. They were very strong, and this is our second child, so we're like, I think we need to go in. Uh, Cindy was wa like literally walking up and down stairs to try to get her contractions to come closer together so that they would let us come in. Finally, we were like, you know what, we're just going in. I have never driven so fast in my life. <laughs> and uh, I, I double parked where, they, where ambulance you know, do their thing, 
and I'm like nervous about that. I'm like, they're gonna tow my car. Well, I shouldn't have been nervous about that because by the time we got Cindy in there and set up, Maddie came eight minutes later. The doctor didn't even get into the room. A nurse caught her, caught her. Reminded me of a football game. Okay, sorry, TMI. The worst part of this story was the medical team uh, on duty that night was incredibly unprofessional. Unprofessional. Uh, you know, they weren't the people, I don't think, that were telling us not to come in, so I'm not talking about that. But when we got in there, they were just kind of laughing. Oh, yeah, everything was fine. Eight minutes was ticking, you know what I mean? And uh, they didn't get Cindy the pre-prep uh, that she needed, and there were some things that were happening that were just egregiously bad. I won't get into all of it. And me in advocate mode was furious. I'm over here like, man, because, you know, you know, Cindy's doing what she's doing, and these guys are, like, giggling, laughing on the side. You know what I mean? I'm like, I don't usually get, I don't get worked up just thinking about it. But, like, I was just getting worked up, like, livid. You know, the kind of thing that it would take a few days maybe to start to, you know, to recover from. You're feeling that strong of emotion, that kind of thing. I'm going to write some emails. <laughs> but then, but then. But then Maddie came out, and I, I wonder if they were pros and they knew what they were doing, but they, they handed her a lot faster to me than they did Caleb for a firstborn. I wonder if that was intentional. But I was holding Maddie, and I can't describe, I'm even reliving it as I'm telling you the story. I went from feeling just furious, like livid, to like, whoa, I'm holding a baby child, and this little girl. And I went... I went from just like, I mean, that, that's what's so crazy to me about this like moment is I went from just feeling just a strong feeling to just like euphoric of like, thank you, Lord, for this little child. Life is such a gift. Full stop. Life is such a gift. And I don't care where you fall and is there a God, is there not a God. We take that for granted all the time. The, the, the air that fills our lungs is such a gift. And this psalmist is saying, you know, life, babies, yeah, even the work that they, they take and require, such a gift. It's a, it's a sign of God's majesty. The last signpost from the material word, world that this psalmist calls out are animals. Are you animal lovers? Here's one. Animals point to the existence of God. You made humankind rulers over the works of your hands, you put everything under their feet, all flocks and herds, the animals of the wild, the birds in the sky and the fish in the sea, all that swim the paths of the seas. Uh, a couple weeks ago, Christina, our kids director and the kids team, uh, had all the current kids write questions in preparation for the series that they're also doing back there. Questions that they would ask God. And you could imagine there's some pretty cute questions that came out, pretty thoughtful questions. Questions like they wrote, how did God create the world? Is there an end to the universe? Questions like, how does vibration work? <laughs> Glad I'm not back there fielding these questions. But, <laughs> but Christina was telling me one of the questions that actually came up repeatedly among uh, the, the kids back there is, what about animals? Will there be animals in heaven? How cute is that, you know? Um, uh, num uh, some of you know this story, but a few years back, uh, we got a dog. We got a, pande a pandemic puppy, our family. And I was holding out really hard to not get a dog. I really didn't want to get a dog because of, of our family, I was the only one who had experienced having a dog, taking care of it, and all the rest of it. And I just knew if we got a bad dog, especially in that busy season of our life, it was going to be our ruin, our utter ruin. 
So I finally caved, and as I caved, I prayed the prayer, Lord, please give us a good-tempered dog. Please give us a good-tempered dog. And it is a sign of God's existence in my life that he gave us a good-tempered dog. <laughs> Not joking. As an answer to prayer. Little Cordy is awesome. He's a little Havanese, hypoallergenic dog, because all of us, if we get around a dog, we start sneezing up a storm. Uh, Cordy is so amazing. He's so, so loyal, so extroverted. He just plays. Last night, we just happened to be watching a, a television show of dogs competing in races. And, you know, the whole time, the whole family was just like, Cordy, we love you. We love you. And Cordy had no idea what was going on. He was just getting extra belly rubs. He was just happy. And, you know, he's just such a loyal dog. And it's just, it's incredible. He, the way Cordy will just look into your soul. And not in a creepy way. I'll just be walking along the house. And I'll just be, you know how you just feel, like, you know, eyes on you or whatever it is? And I'll just look around. Sure enough, Cordy's just sitting there. And he's just looking, he's peering into your soul with the whole communication. It's kind of obvious. Play? Will you play with me? Play? His tail starts to wag. And if I, walk, if I look at him too long, he receives that as a yes. Okay, play. And he gets this little toy. And, we, and I can't say no, right, even if it's the middle of the night. Animals and their complexity, their beauty on the inside and outside are, like, are so beyond just the function of, of what they are. Like all of this, the the psalmist is saying, it points to, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And really the main point that the psalmist is saying, which I love, it's very subtle, but it seems clear to me this is the main point, is he's saying, this Lord, which incidentally, for those of you who know, this is the, the most precious and holy name, Yahweh. This, the great I am, is our Lord. He's our Lord. He makes himself available to us. And so if you consider the heavens, if you consider the material world, if you consider life, babies, if you consider animals and all the complexity of all this, you will rightly con conclude that we are insignificant in the vastness of it all. But the point the psalmist is making is we are made significant at God's pleasure and will. He makes us Significant. I mean, that's really the heart of this psalm where it says, What is mankind that you are mindful of them? Human beings that you care for them. You have made them a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honor. You made them rulers over the works of your hands. At the very heart of God's majesty and his glory is that he desires so intimately to be in relationship with you and me. The problem is... If we consider Psalm 8, we quickly understand that this ideal paradise has been lost. In many ways, Psalm 8 is a re recapitulation of Genesis 1 and 2, the creation accounts in the first book of the Bible. You know, where God creates the heavens, he creates animals, he creates people, and he looks at it and he says it's good. Looks back on it, he calls it very good. And it's all wonderful. There's a lot of majesty and there's a lot of glory in it. The problem is, we all know, it's been marred. It's not perfect. It's not the ideal. Paradise has been lost. And the Bible is clear. The reason it's been lost is because of our choices to essentially reject the creator, the majestic one, by living lives in, in sin is how the Bible describes it. Basically doing the things that he calls us not to do. Selfishness, greed, harshness, impatience, whatever you call it. 
and how that impacts not only our relationships with others, not only our relationship with ourselves, but also, and most importantly, our relationship with him, the one who wants to be in relationship with us. But this psalm is a pointer to God's majesty, not only in that he set it up for it to be good and wonderful, but that he is working to make it right. Because with paradise lost, the promise is still the Lord, our Lord, is majestic. There's a promise of, of still being in relationship with him. But the question is, well, how? How, how do we be in relationship? How is that possible? Uh, I, I said earlier that uh, my dad had us kids memorize this psalm when we were little, the old King James Version. Here's how the old King James Version uh, puts puts verse 4. What is man that thou art mindful of him, and the son of man that thou visitest him? I think I added a is there, but we always laughed at that as kids. But and that's actually a more literal translation, by the way, that God visits us. Uh, and of course, this is a picture of the gospel, that God the Son would come into the world to make a way back into relationship with him. Um, Listen to how Hebrews, uh, a book in the New Testament, uh, talks about this uh, in its opening uh, verses. It says, In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. Do you hear all the notes of Psalm 8 in there? Actually, I'm thinking about this in real time with you now. Uh, I wonder if the Hebrews writer was thinking about Psalm 8 very explicitly as he wrote this. There's so many connections here. You see them, right? Talking about God's majesty. And his point here is talking about how God, the, he, he's saying, look, if you look to, if you consider the heavens, if you consider babies, if you consider animals and all the other things in the material world, and you think that's cool, that shows God's glory, well, none of that comes even close in comparing to the glory revealed in God the Son, who is the exact representation of God's glory. And we have seen him. He is Jesus. That is how the Lord, of course, our Lord, has made himself available to us. As he sent his Son to visit us, him. To literally visit us. And to go, to, to take on, to empty himself of all his glory in a sense. To make himself lower than angels. To become a babe and suckling. And ultimately to live the life that we don't live and die the death that we deserve. In other words, dying on the cross for our sins. That we can receive forgiveness by faith in him. And when we do, we receive eternal life with him. That's the gospel. That's the good news. That's what Christianity is about in a nutshell. That you can receive Jesus in eternal life with him, the creator, the majestic one, even now in your heart. Not by anything you can do or earn, but based entirely on receiving him by faith. God loves us so much. This majestic one, the great I am, who created it all, 
looks at us and loves us with the force of sending his son to the world to die for you and me. Uh, a couple of takeaways, and then we'll close. A couple of takeaways. What, what, what do we do with this song? Okay? seems to me a, a couple of things here, and we'll just breeze through these. Number one, explore. If you've been exploring, keep exploring. I remember last week, if you happened to be here, we talked about Pascal's wager, that 17th century mathematician who came to faith in Christ later on in his life. He said, look, if God is a personal God and he's there, why don't, why don't try praying? Why don't wager on praying and asking him to reveal himself to you? But then watch sincerely to see if he reveals himself to you. Um, Romans 1.20 says this of essentially everything we've been saying. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been seen clearly, being understood from what has been made. Philosopher Alvin uh, Plantinga put it this way in his book, uh, Warranted Christian Belief. He said, based on the evidence, based on the signposts, to use language that we're using today, it's actually not a big faith jump to believe that there's a God. And it's not a faith jump that requires you to turn off your brain. So, number one, explore. Number two, and this is for those of you who are followers of Jesus, uh, this psalm calls us to worship, does it not? Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all of the earth. It calls us to worship. Do you have the rhythm of worship in your life? Worship, in its most simplest form, is, a, is ascribing worth to something. In a trivial sense, it's like coming out of the movie and saying, wow, wasn't that great? Or seeing Steph Curry hit a bajillion threes and going, man, you are amazing. I mean, it's not lost to me that we even like pantomime, like bowing down to our athletes. You know, that's the kind of idea of worship. But in a far more holy sense, it's saying to God, God, you are the creator. You are the one who's done all of this and it's all good. Forgive me for missing the mark. Thank you for loving me when I missed the mark. But I see you in it all and I give you praise. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Lord, our Lord, how majestic are you in my life? You have the rhythm of praise. One of the things the Bible teaches us, Romans 12, verses 1 and 2 especially, articulate this, is that worship is not just a Sunday morning one-hour thing when we have a guitar playing. It's an all-of-life thing. It's what we're doing throughout the day. So do you have a rhythm of life? Do you have a rhythm of when you see a beautiful sunset, for instance, going, wow, thank you, Lord, for that sunset. Or you see God do something in a relationship at work that you've been praying for, and you go, wow, Lord, thank you for answering that prayer. All of this is worship. It's not just turning on, you know, Christian music and having it bumping the whole time. and making. It's just all of life looking for ways to just thank the Lord. And I would just say this to parents out here. You can cultivate this in, in your children, a rhythm of worship. So, for instance, I've been talking about how I love sunsets. Uh, growing up on road trips, I used to see sunsets, and I'd always say, Dad, Mom, look, look at the sunset. And my parents almost always said, wow, that's so beautiful. Isn't God amazing in making that sunset for us? And as a little one, I'm like, oh, yeah, 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 God's an artist. That's a cool one today, God. Number two, this calls us to, to worship. Number three, this calls us, this song calls us to steward, to take responsibility for the planet, frankly, uh, verse, verses 6 through 8, I won't read all of them, say, you made, you made them rulers over the works of your hands. It makes me so sad when Christians say something to the tune of, well, Jesus is coming back anyway, so who cares? We don't need to take care of the planet. We don't need to do the, our part or whatever. No. If anything, verses like these in the scripture, and there are others, 
are saying Christians, if anything, need to lead out in stewarding the world. The planet, resources, relationships. Jesus said we are to be the salt of the earth. We are to be preservation agents. We are to work alongside God to redeem things. Even as, yes, we do believe that God's going to come and make a new heavens, a new, new earth. We're to steward. And then last but not least, I think this, this psalm is calling us to have perspective. Take perspective. Take inventory. He says, when I consider the works of your hands. We've got to consider these things. We've got to take, let it marinate and have perspective. I mentioned earlier that uh, I love sunsets, okay? Sunsets are one of the ways I, I personally have like an out-of-body experience where I'm like, wow, there's got to be a God. Another place I have an out-of-body experience, this might sound kind of random, is at takeoff when we're in an airplane. <laughs> Sounds kind of weird. But when we take off, you know how when you take off and you happen to have a window seat? I don't get that anymore with little kids. I never get the window. But you get to look out and you get to see people become ants and buildings become Lego pieces. You know what I mean? And I feel like the Lord has used that, those moments in my life to give me a little bit of perspective. There's just a time where I just go, not every time, but often I just, when I see the people just get so small and then you lose sight of them, I just go like, wow, Lord, this must be how you see things. I mean, you see them, you see them every, from every angle, but I, I never consider it from this angle because there's so many people down there and I'm never going to know any of their stories. But God, you know all of their stories perfectly and love them and care for them. And, and I always in those moments feel like, and Lord, help me do the same. You know, individually as a follower of yours, as a church here in the Silicon Valley. Because what we've seen here in Psalm 8 is that there are, there are a lot of signposts within the, within the natural world that are pointing to the existence and presence of God. But what God also wants us to, to have is that same perspective that he wants to use you and me if a follower is his to be signposts to him as well. We're called to be people here in the Silicon Valley, a church here in the Silicon Valley that is pointing people to God. And yes, that includes when we mess up. Because some of the most beautiful things we see of God's nature is when we own our mess ups and receive his grace. Because paradise has been lost, but God the Son came in to redeem it, and he wants to use you and me to do that. And so this psalm calls us to explore, it calls us to worship, it calls us to steward, it calls us to have this perspective. Are you looking for the signposts, and can you be a signpost pointing to others to the Lord? Let's pray. Father, thank you for the beauty in the world. Thank you for the heavens, the stars, the moon, the sun. Thank you for life. Thank you for children. Thank you for generational love. Thank you for animals. Thank you for this earth. Thank you for the resources. Would you help us see you in it? Maybe receive you in it. Would you help us worship you? Would you help us steward it well? And would you help us have the perspective and urgency of being pointers of ourselves to you and your great love? We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.